Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, David Simpson tells us about the Songhai Empire, the greatest empire to have existed on the African continent. Today's presentation features the Songhai Empire, which flourished in West Africa during the late 15th and 16th centuries, originating as a city-state along the eastern side of a bend of the Niger River in the 9th century of the Common Era, the Songhai would expand their territory dramatically from the reign of King Sunni Ali in the later 15th century until it spread from the Atlantic coast eastwards into modern-day Mauritania, Senegal, Nigeria and Mali, encompassing in total some 540,000 square miles. With its capital at Gao, and managing to control the Trans-Saharian trade through such centres as Timbuktu and Jene, the empire prospered throughout the 16th century, until, ripped apart by civil wars, it was attacked and absorbed into the Moroccan Empire in 1591. It was never an easy state to govern. Of its 11 emperors, eight were either deposed in bloody rebellion or died violently, usually at the hands of a brother or uncle. And yet, under one of its rulers, it stood for a time at the edge of a golden era, unlike anything ever seen in sub-Saharan Africa. So how did this small kingdom rise to such heights to become possibly Africa's greatest ever empire? And how, after just 128 years, did this great civilization collapse into the ashes of history? In 1854, the great German explorer Heinrich Barth explored Western Africa on a mammoth 12,000 mile journey. As he began the return trip, his guides mentioned a lost city in the African savannah, unseen by Europeans for hundreds of years. Hacking his way through bush, wading through swamp and trudging through desert, Barth finally emerged on a bend in the Great Niger River where the city was supposed to be found. What he saw was underwhelming. About 300 mud huts built among some ruins. And the ruins had become overgrown by creepers and trees now grew through the masonry, obscuring its extent. But as Bart began to explore the rubble remains, it became clear to him that this was no small settlement. The city walls ran for six miles and there were clearly the skeletal remains of great mosques and towers. One of the towers, supposedly the burial place of its great kings, was in fact still several storeys high. This was clearly once a great city, one that would have rivaled many European cities of its day. Bart had found the great city of Gao, which had once been the capital of the mighty empire of the Songhai. According to oral history, the first people to settle in Gao were river people known as the Sorko, 
who fished the Niger from the 6th century onwards. They were soon followed by a tribe of skilled hunters known as the Gao, who gave Gao its name. Then came the farmers who cultivated crops in the fertile floodplains in the Niger. And the final group, the one that would meld these disparate people into a single kingdom, were horsemen from the north called the Songhai. From its beginning sometime in the 11th century, the Songhai kingdom was a blended and complex society based on the Niger. The Niger is the lifeblood for West Africa. It's the longest river in the region at 2,500 miles in length, rising in the mountains of Guinea and arcing its way to the West African Atlantic coast. Its name may be derived from the Berber for river of rivers and its huge floodplain, which is five times that of the Nile, is so very fertile and crops such as rice, millet and couscous can be grown. Today, this area of Africa is part of the region that's known as the Sahel and is a transition zone from the savannah to the desert. Sahel means coast or shore in Arabic and this area is the shoreline of the Great Sand Sea of the Sahara. It's also sometimes called Sudan, not to be confused with the countries of the same name, but is in fact its own geographical entity. One that stretches from the West African Atlantic coast to the eastern edge of the Sahara. Without the Niger and the monsoon rains, this area would soon become desert itself. And for centuries, the Sahara formed an insurmountable barrier between West Africa and contact with North Africa and the Mediterranean coast. But this great sand sea would be broached by the ships of the desert when camels were introduced from Arabia in the fourth century of the Common Era. Trade soon flourished and great caravans of several hundred camels regularly crossed the Sahara, winding their way from oasis to oasis, carrying ivory, spices and wheat to the markets on the Mediterranean. And another cargo was also transported across the Sahara, slaves. Slavery had been a flourishing trade throughout Africa long before Europeans began the transatlantic slave route and sub-Saharan Africa was a never-ending source of manpower. But there was another cargo, even more valuable than slaves, and that was gold. Up until discovery of the New World, West Africa was the primary source for gold in the known world. There was so much that Europeans and Muslims firmly believed that there was a mountain of gold being kept secret by the kings of West Africa. And they also believed that the myth of King Solomon's mines might actually be true. What was true is that gold in West Africa came from hundreds of tiny gold mines and panning stations all along the Senegal and Niger rivers. Mined by farmers who, when drought or flood prevented agriculture, turned to farming the river for its golden harvest. But it is not only goods that flow through the trade routes, so too do ideas. And while gold flowed north, Arab culture and the young religion of Islam flowed south. Conversion for many of the inhabitants in West Africa was a practical step, a way of gaining acceptance and influence into the Arab-dominated North African kingdoms. For the town dwellers, becoming a Muslim offered several benefits. It created a rapport with the Arab traders, avoided certain taxes, and protected them from the worst deprivations of the slave trade, as under Islamic law, 
A fellow Muslim could not take another Muslim as a slave. Conversion to Islam in this region started as early as the 11th century, but soon created a schism between rich and poor, urban and rural. Because while the towns of West Africa became Muslim, the farmers and their labourers retained the old ways, worshipping their ancestors and the ancient spirits that lived in the natural world. This type of religion is known as animism. Animism is more of a belief system than a formal religion, one that believed that spirits rested in certain objects, especially natural phenomena. The two most important spirits in West Africa were Haraki Diko and Dongo, who were linked to the Niger River and thunderstorms respectively, which is hardly surprising given the importance of the river and the rains to agriculture and to trade in the dry West African savanna. These spirits, and others, had to be kept constantly in a good mood, hence they were made offerings of food and drink, and honoured with mass dances and ceremonies. There were even practising priests who made it their business to minimise the interference of evil spirits in village life. The animists, though, always felt at odds with this new religion of Islam, and while some of the kings tried to keep both sides happy, others used the division for their own ends. Despite this potential for unrest, the camel caravans kept transporting all sorts of trade goods, and especially through the river of gold that flowed northwards, the kingdoms of West Africa grew incredibly wealthy. The Songhai Empire was not the first to rise to prominence in West Africa. The first empire to do so was the Empire of Ghana, or to be more accurate, the Empire of Wagadu, as Ghana is actually the title of its ruler, a title which has since become synonymous with the country itself. It controlled the western area from about 300 to 1100 of the Common Era and grew rich on the increased trade with the countries to the north. But Ghana eventually declined until it became a mere vassal state of the next empire to rise, the Empire of Mali. The Empire of Mali followed a similar path to that of Ghana, growing from a small tribal kingdom to become the largest empire in Africa at that time, and eventually incorporating the small kingdom of Songhai, of which much more later. The Empire of Mali was in existence from 1235 till 1670, and its story, and especially that of its most famous ruler, Mansa Musa, reputedly the richest man in the world, is worth its own talk. But the Empire of Mali also eventually fell into terminal decline. So just as Mali replaced Ghana, so a new player began to flex its muscles and would soon replace it as the largest empire in Africa, the Kingdom of Songhai. But I will now take a short digression to explain a geopolitical concept which will be used to explain the rise and fall of the Songhai Empire, the Empire Life Cycle Theory. The main proponent of this theory is Sir John Bagot Glubb, known to many of you as Glubb Pasha, leader of the Arab Legion of the Transjordanian Army between 1939 and 1956. In its most simplistic form, his theory suggests that the average lifespan of an empire is 250 years or 10 generations and go through six stages of development from birth to death. For speed, I have simplified this to just four. Firstly, expansion. When the empire grows, historically through military conquest, but today more likely to be economic power. 
The second stage is stabilisation, where the conquerors become administrators of their new territories and begin to extract value from their new lands. The third stage is decay, when the empire becomes weaker, more permissive, turns inward and begins to eat itself through internal conflict. Finally, the fourth stage is the end state, whereby the empire enters a spiral of decay and becomes a shadow of its former glory. This decline may take decades to appear and may only be seen from the vantage point of history, but eventually the empire becomes so weak that it becomes a target for the next military or economic power. We see this happen time and time again throughout history and even today and the Empire of the Songhai would be no different. But before we do get on with that story, I do need to talk to you about one of the issues I have come across in pulling together this presentation, and that is the issue of sources. There are three types of primary source for the area of West African history that we are interested in, and all three can offer divergent views of the same event. This has made piecing together the history of the region especially difficult for the historian, and maybe one of the reasons why our knowledge of African history is so poor in comparison to that of India and China. The first source I want to talk about are the Arab travellers and scribes who cross the Sahara to investigate the lands to the south. Two of them stand out in particular. The first is Ibn Bentuta, born 1304, died 1369. Ibn Bentuta has been described as the Moroccan Marco Polo, for the length of his travels and the countries that he visited. In fact, Marco Polo should be described as the poor man's Ibn Bentuta, as Marco Polo only travelled for 15,000 miles, whereas Ibn Bentuta travelled for 72,000 miles. During 30 years in the 14th century, Ibn Bentuta travelled all over the Middle East, North and Sub-Saharan Africa, Afghanistan, Central Asia, India and China leaving volumes of his notes of his travels. The other traveller is Leo Africanus, born 1494, died 1554, a Spanish Moor who wrote early in the 16th century and was in the Songhai in about 1510. While travelling, he was taken prisoner by European pirates and eventually arrived in Rome, where he converted to Christianity and wrote his notes. It must be said, some of his notes are slightly far-fetched. For many of those mentioned in the history books, there are no contemporary or even near-contemporary pictures, and what we are left with is usually a more modern representation of these characters. And to make it even more complicated, when you do a search on the internet, the same image appears under several different names. The second source is the unique trove of folklore and myth kept alive by the storytelling traditions of West Africa. This repository of oral histories is guarded by a mysterious caste of mystics and holy men known as the Griots. The Griots are a combination of storyteller, historian, singer, poet and dancer and are still active in the region today. These wise men were often treated by the kings as special advisers and their stories tread a fine line between history and myth covering all sorts of stories, including sorcerers and magic. The stories of the Griots themselves were only written down during the late 19th century, so who knows quite how accurate they are, but they remain an invaluable source of cultural heritage. The third group of sources are perhaps the most important, and that is the famous scholars of Timbuktu. 
These scholars wrote a mixture from the Arab travellers and the griots in that they linked the writings of the Arab Muslims and the oral histories of the shaman. Timbuktu itself was a library city on the edge of the desert that was home to a scholarly tradition unseen anywhere else in sub-Saharan Africa at the time. Timbuktu was plugged into a network of intellectuals in areas such as Baghdad, Alexandria and Cordoba in Moorish Spain and its histories and stories travelled far. The two most important pieces of work created by the scholars of Timbuktu are the famous Chronicles of Timbuktu. The first is the Tariq al-Fatash, which was written in the second half of the 17th century, possibly by a scholar called Mahmoud Kati, or his grandson Ibn al-Mukhtar, and tells the story of the Songhai Empire from 1462 to 1600s. The second is the Tariq al-Sudan, which was written sometime before 1656 by a man called El Saadi, an administrator for the Moroccans who ruled Timbuktu at this time. These two chronicles are sometimes known in European literature as the Chronicles of the Seeker or the Chronicles of Africa. Unfortunately, like the Griots and like some of the stories from Ibn Bentuta and Leo Africanus, the accuracy of these works could also be called into question as they were often written at the behest of kings and so can be seen as works of political propaganda. But used in combination with the other sources, they can be used to tell the story of the Songhai. So as you can see, there can be many versions of the same event told through the lens of whichever source you're using. History becomes more interpretive, less black and white historical fact. The story of the empire of the Songhai I'm about to tell you is therefore up for debate but I've tried wherever possible to use books and websites that have used multiple sources. The earliest known mention of the Songhai does not appear in the records until the 9th century of the Common Era. It appears to have begun as a small city-state centred on the city of Gao. Gao, despite Islam being adopted as the formal religion of the Songhai as early as 1019, was always home to a strong animist minority who worshipped the gods and spirits of the ancient ways of Africa. Gao itself was a trading centre, located where the yellow of the desert met the lush green of the Niger floodplain, a place where locally sourced goods were exchanged with goods brought down from the Mediterranean. From Gao there spread a series of trade routes, east, west, north and south, until Gao itself sat in the middle like a large spider in a huge web. By 1325, the Songhai, based in Gao, had become so rich that the mighty Mali Empire began to eye its wealth with a covetous gaze. As previously mentioned, Mali replaced the Empire of Ghana in the 13th century, and by the 14th century had become the largest empire in Africa, and was ruled over by the mighty Mansa Musa, reputed to be the wealthiest man in the world. But too much is never enough, and the great wealth of the Songhai and the spread of its territories made it a great prize, and Mali decided to take it. Mali had an army of over 100,000 men, and was also the largest iron-producing country in West Africa, and this allowed it to arm this large army with swords, spears and armour. The small kingdom of the Songhai never stood a chance, and was soon assimilated into the empire as a client state in about 1325. 
But this did not stop the Songhai, and Gao in particular grew expansively. And 18 years later, Ibn Bantuta, that Moroccan Marco Polo, described Gao as one of the biggest, richest, and most fertile cities in Africa. High praise indeed from someone who was usually very critical of the kingdoms of West Africa. At Gao, Mansa Musa commissioned Abu Ishaq al-Sahili, a poet and architect from Granada, to build several new mosques. The mosque at Gao was the first building in West Africa to be built with fired bricks. Timbuktu also flourished, both commercially and culturally. It was on the caravan route to Egypt and all the other important trade centres in North Africa. Side by side with the encouragement of trade and commerce, learning and the arts received royal patronage. Scholars who were mainly interested in history, Quranic theology and law were to make the Mosque of Sankore in Timbuktu a teaching centre and to lay the foundations for the University of Sankore in the early 14th century. And so the Songhai began life under the auspices of the Mali Empire and the beneficence of Mansa Musa. But if the client kingdoms flourished under a successful king, the death of a king, especially a long-lived king such as Mansa Musa, spelled disaster. It is not just in English history that we see contested royal succession as times of crisis. In African history, a succession crisis could be as big a danger to the populace as earthquake, famine or drought. The issue was that there were no clear laws in West Africa regarding who could or could not succeed to the throne, except, of course, it had to be a man. It was open to the brothers of the king as well as the king's sons, a problem made much worse by the fact that there were usually too many heirs and not too few. The kings were permitted to have four wives as well as access to concubines, and it was not unusual for a king to have over 20 sons. One king, in fact, was rumoured to have several hundred children. And so, in 1337, when Mansa Musa died, it led to a bloody civil war as brother fought brother and son fought son. All this conflict encouraged the neighbours of Mali that now was the time to take some of the empire's wealth. The states on Mali's borders began to raid deep into Mali territory. The aggressive Mossi people in particular, who lived in today's Burkina Faso, were particularly troublesome. They were famous horsemen and they raided as far north as Timbuktu, reminiscent of the chevauchets of the Black Prince of England taking place at the same time in France. This type of activity deeply worried the client states like the Songhai, for if the empire could not protect them, then they would have to protect themselves. The coastal state of Jolof declared independence, and when it was not suppressed by Mali, other client states took notice, and the empire of Mali began to collapse. However, it was a slow and painful collapse, as the central control was still strong, and the empire was still financially solvent. The root of the collapse, though, that led to the rise of the Songhai Empire can be found in the reign of Musaketa II of Mali. He reigned between 1372 and 1387. Musa II was king in name only. The true power rested in his chief vizier, a man called Mariajata. So confident was Mariajata that he threw Musa II in jail and ruled in his stead, just using the imprisoned king as a figurehead who was wheeled out in heavy guard on certain state occasions. 
The legitimacy of the Mali Empire was therefore at an all-time low. Years of civil war, misrule and maladministration eventually led to Mali's eastern provinces attempting to throw off the imperial yoke. Most client states failed, but not the Songhai. They put up a much tougher fight and they declared independence in 1375 under the leadership of Suleiman Mar. Suleiman Mar was connected to the ruling Tsar dynasty of the Songhai, but he helped create the Sunni dynasty that would rule the Songhai for the next 123 years. The Songhai seized some of the eastern territories of the Malian Empire during this period of upheaval and now put together a rebel alliance from the other eastern groups to take the fight to the empire. Using the river for amphibious purposes, they launched a guerrilla war deep into Mali, striking at towns and cities all along the Niger with significantly large forces. The tactics worked to a point. While the hit-and-run nature of the raids tied down a much larger Malian army, it could not destroy it in the field. Both sides were too strong to lose, too weak to win. The result was stalemate. And so, an uneasy peace settled over the Songhai by the last quarter of the 14th century, a peace not felt in Mali that underwent a chain of kingly assassinations and usurpations, followed by more revolts. The Mali Empire had entered that third stage of the empire life cycle model, that of decay. Mali was invaded from the south and the north, and for over a century Mali spiralled deeper and deeper into decline meaning that the Songhai were left to their own devices. And so the famous Empire of Mali entered the last and final stage of the empire life cycle model and would eventually be snuffed out in the 17th century. The Songhai kingdom now grew slowly in power throughout the 15th century and was fully established by the 1430s and one by the 1460s was ready to rise from the ashes of the Empire of Mali to become Africa's greatest ever power. The empire life cycle had started once again, and the man who would propel Songhai the kingdom, based on a small area of land around Gao, to Songhai the mighty empire, was called Sunni Ali. Some historians have called Sunni Ali the most controversial character in African history, which given that includes such luminaries as Idi Amin and Emperor Bakasa, is one hell of a title. According to the Tariq al-Sudan, one of the chronicles of Timbuktu, Sunni Ali reigned for 28 years, waged 32 wars, always the conqueror, never the conquered. A ruthless military leader, Sunni Ali was poised to become the first emperor of the Songhai, a man of limitless energy and ambition, who intended to take full advantage of the power vacuum in the eastern territories of the declining empire of Mali. Little is known about Sunni Ali's early life. We do not know for sure when he was born or even where, but he was a blood prince of the Songhai. What we do know is he took the throne in about 1464 and his reign would mark an exceptional expansion of territory that within 14 years would result in the empire of Songhai. Sunni Ali defeated many tribes, including the Mossi and the Fulani, and rid the empire of any immediate external danger. Next, he focused on territorial expansion, the most important part of which was the taking of Timbuktu in 1468 and Jene in 1475. 
After this, he went on to dominate the Lakes region, the Middle Niger, once controlled by Mali. These conquered territories were divided into regions and ruled over by governors appointed by the king. Tribute was extracted from local chiefs, hostages taken, and marriages of political alliance arranged. Sunni Ali's only failure was that his territorial gains did not give him access to some of the larger gold fields found on the southern coast of West Africa, as these had fallen under the sphere of influence of Portugal from 1470 onwards. It was not just Gao and Gene in Timbuktu, though, that became sophisticated urban centres. All the trade centres developed in this period of housing built of stone, large marketplaces and numerous mosques. Just outside the cities, though, there lived a suburban population living in mud and reed huts. Rural communities, meanwhile, continued to be wholly dependent on agriculture. But the presence of rural markets do indicate that there was usually a food surplus. In fact, Sunni Ali proved to be an exceptionally good administrator, whose agricultural reforms improved the irrigation of the Niger floodplain and increased crop yield over large parts of the land. Certainly, famine was a rare event during Sunni Ali's reign, and there are no records of any peasant revolts, so surely all of his people loved him. Well, I did mention he was controversial. He is seen totally differently by two of our primary sources. The oral history of the Griots, those wise men of the Songhai, place him as a great and powerful ruler who bent the forces of magic to his will. They call him Ali Bear or Ali the Great, the first emperor of the Songhai. However, the chronicles of Timbuktu cast him as a cruel ruler. In fact, the Tariq al-Fatash called him the tyrant, the cursed, the oppressor. It is fair to say they had just caused to castigate him, as we shall see later. Sunni Ali began as a military leader, so not surprisingly, one of the first items on his agenda when he took the throne was a root and branch reform of his military forces, with the intention of modernising and restructuring the Songhai army. The first area of reform was the procurement and quality of horses. He had seen how swiftly the Mali army had lost its effectiveness once it lost its access to horses, and so began a large-scale equine breeding programme, the largest ever seen in Africa. This not only increased the quantity of horses he had available, it also increased the quality, as he pioneered the use of crossbreeding to create a breed of horse that was better suited to the African environment. His innovations did not end there. He also looked after the horse's welfare by building large stables that could protect them from both the heat and humidity, but also from the tetsi fly that was just as dangerous to horses as it was to humans. And it wasn't just the horses that he paid attention. He also introduced some innovations for their riders. In particular, he introduced an iron breastplate that while it must have been bloody uncomfortable to wear during the heat of campaign, increased the protection offered to the cavalryman as well as affording extra weight and strength to the shock value of his squadrons of heavy cavalry. As mentioned previously, the Songhai had a penchant for amphibious raiding as early as the 14th century. Sunni Ali took it to the next level. He expanded the number of boats in the Songhai navy up to a fleet of nearly 400. And don't think of those small canoes that you sometimes see on documentaries some of these Songhai boats could carry up to 30 tons or even 100 men. 
The importance Sonny Ali placed on this fleet can be seen by the fact he always appointed one of his key generals as Admiral of the Fleet and rewarded him with the title Master of the Water. If he was innovative in the type of boats and how they were used. So during the seventh month siege of Genet, an important trading centre on the banks of the Niger, he had a canal built that allowed him to ferry supplies closer to his siege lines. Perhaps surprisingly, given his ruthless reputation, Sunni Ali also proved to be very lenient to his conquered foes, and he recruited the defeated warriors and soon his army swelled to a size of 40,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry. All this innovation paid off, and the Songhai army moved away from the hit-and-run tactics used in his past to a more aggressive and sustained style of warfare, and this new campaigning style proved to be effective. The Tariq al-Sudan grudgingly admitted that Ali was always victorious, pillaging every land on which he fixed his choice. His armies were never defeated. From Kanta to Sibirirugu, his horses ran all over these lands. But it is while on campaign that we see why Sunni Ali is seen as such a diversive and controversial figure, for he used terror as a weapon. Sunni Ali continued across that line between the genuine prosecution of aggressive campaigning and what today would be seen as major war crimes and in fact genocide. He once ordered the extermination of whole tribe who had risen in rebellion against him and according to the chronicles, once he had finished with them, their remaining population could sit beneath the shade of a single tree. He is also accused of many instances of infanticide and was extremely cruel. He quite often sentenced people to death, only to reprieve some of them, literally, as the executioner's sword began to drop. Perhaps not too surprisingly, such cruel and brutal behaviour earned Sunyali a plethora of nicknames all of which can be found in the Chronicles of Timbuktu. Ali the Merciless, the Degenerate, the Accursed, the Great Tyrant, the Arrogant One, Ali the Godless, the Profane, the Cold-Hearted, the Despot, the Shedder of Blood, the Notorious Evildoer, the Killer of so many that only God the Most High knows the number. I think you can clearly see they didn't really like the guy. Given his behaviour, it's easy to see why modern scholars believe he may have suffered from a psychological personality disorder. He certainly had a deep-rooted hatred of scholars, driven perhaps by a distrust of Islam. Some sources claim Sunni Ali was at best a lukewarm Muslim, while the griots claim him as a 100% animist. Others have hypothesised that he was in fact an illiterate and hated the scholars because they had skills and knowledge that he simply could not comprehend. Whatever the reason, Sunni Ali saw the source of any unrest to his rule as emanating from the city of Timbuktu, and he decided to once and for all to scour the city and its scholars from the face of the earth. So in 1468, he set his sights on one of the greatest prizes in the whole of Africa, the great capital of teaching, the heart of learning, the eternal library city of Timbuktu. The ancient city of Timbuktu has taken on a mythical air. In 2006, a UK survey found 30% of people thought Timbuktu was a place like Atlantis or El Dorado, a place of legend rather than fact. 
In fact, Timbuktu started as a seasonal settlement, located about 20 miles north of the Niger River. While there are some questions as to how Timbuktu got its name, what is not in doubt is that it grew wealthy on the Trans-Saharian trade in salt, gold, ivory, spices and, of course, slaves. By the 12th century, it was no longer a seasonal settlement, but a permanent hub on the trade route, and its population grew from a few hundred to possibly a hundred thousand by the mid-15th century, making it one of the largest cities in West Africa. Its multicultural inhabitants included Africans, Arabs, Europeans, and an exceptionally large Jewish population. It was a major commerce centre, and the wealth generated by the raising of taxes led to an explosion in culture and learning. Timbuktu became a city of books. The local climate was perfect for the production and preservation of books, regardless of whether they were written on sheepskin, bark or paper. The books were written in countless languages, including Songhai, Fulani and Arabic, and illuminated heavily in gold. Timbuktu was also very much an Islamic city, boasting many mosques and nearly 200 Quranic schools. So that its inhabitants could not be any doubt when Sunni Ali marched against the city in 1468, Ali sent a courier into the city to deliver a chilling message. According to the Tariq al-Fatash, the messenger arrived at midday, the drum was beaten and the crowd gathered around him. Unsheathing a sword and brandishing by the hilt, he said, This is the sword of the king. I have been ordered to cut the throat of anyone who stays the night in this town. In the blink of an eye, all the inhabitants fled. Some did not even take their suppers, while others forgot to bring blankets for sleeping. Perhaps not too surprisingly, Sunni Ali took the city without resistance, and he immediately ordered his soldiers to gather all the books they could find and burnt them in giant pyres. We are fortunate that while the scholars may have forgotten their suppers and their blankets, they did not forget all of their books. This ancient collection was in part saved, some taken away by the fleeing scholars, others hidden in the hope of return. But Sunni Ali carried out his threat, and any scholar found within the city was summarily executed. And this was not a one-and-done raid. In the next 24 years, Sunni Ali launched five purges on the city of Timbuktu. He attacked its nobles, destroyed its books, tore down its schools and libraries, and expelled its scholars. Perhaps not too surprisingly, the people of the Songhai eventually grew weary of being ruled by a psychopath and began to look for a saviour, an alternative to the tyrant, and this saviour was called Askia Muhammad. The greatest emperor of the Songhai was a man called Askia Muhammad. Askia Muhammad, born 1443, died 1538, was born Muhammad Kure Silla, possibly in Futatoro, in semi-desert region on the Senegal River. He took the name Askia Muhammad only after he took the throne, but for ease of recognition I refer to him as Askia Muhammad throughout this presentation. Askia is a title and may mean ruler or usurper ruler, and Muhammad and his descendants took the name for their dynasty. Askia Muhammad 
had no legitimate claim to the throne, but according to some sources he may have been Sunni Ali's nephew. While he was not of the royal blood, he was a nobleman and a great warrior who held a position in the Songhai court known as the Tondifari, or Lord of the Mountains. His realm was the rocky hills and sandstone mountains of the Bandiagara Escarpment, a 500-foot cliff that ran for nearly 100 miles along the border between Mali and Burkina Faso. It's a tough region full of tough people, including mountain bandits and hardy, rugged hill tribes. It was also one of the most disputed borders in the whole empire, as it faced the lands controlled by the Mossi people, whom we have met before. They were an aggressive raiding tribe who were a constant thorn in the side of both the Empire of Mali and now the Empire of Tsongkhai. Askia Muhammad therefore commanded a large and battle-hardened army, experienced in campaigning and all types of warfare. It's fair to say that Askia Muhammad and Sunni Ali did not get on, and this is despite the fact that Askia Muhammad had a proven track record of keeping the borderlands relatively quiet. It's unclear why they clashed so much. It may have been because Askey Muhammad was a devout Muslim, while Sunni Ali definitely was not. But whatever the reason, Askey Muhammad was imprisoned many times and even sentenced to death more than once. But each time Sunni Ali relented and reprieved him. Again, why he was reprieved is unclear, but it is just possible that Sunni Ali recognised that Askey Muhammad was the yin to his yang that Askey Muhammad was a shrewd diplomat and may have offered thoughtful counsel to the king, especially useful when Sunni Ali was prone to violent and bloody rages. Askey Muhammad may have been a turbulent underling, but he was also indispensable. But if Askey Muhammad was as shrewd and thoughtful as the Tariq al-Fatash and Tariq al-Sudan make out, then it is also likely that Askey Muhammad was also scheming behind Sunni Ali's back and positioning himself as an alternative to the tyrant king. If he was planning to replace Sunni Ali, then his opportunity soon came. Sunni Ali died suddenly in November 1492, in the 28th year of his reign. How he died is mysterious. According to the Tariq al-Fatash, we hear that Ali was struck down by God as divine retribution for abusing a holy man, while the Tariq al-Sudan claimed that he was drowned in a sudden flash flood. If we take this latter source as being maybe a bit more realistic, we may just see the hand of Askey Muhammad in Sunni Ali's sudden demise. For the location of this so-called flash flood is the village of Kuna, a village that belonged to Askey Muhammad. Sunni Ali was also buried by Askey Muhammad's men very, very quickly and before any of Sunni Ali's men could see it himself perhaps to hide any inconvenient sword wounds, we will never know. The planned line of succession was that Sunni Ali would be replaced by his son, Sunni Baru, but Sunni Baru lasted on the throne for less than six months. Almost immediately on his succession, the country rose in rebellion, fearful that Baru would follow his father's authoritarian policies, and there were also rumours that Baru was even less of a Muslim than his father had been, and Muslims feared for their property and their lives. Many of the exiled noble families of Timbuktu now marched back into the Songhai with their armies and rallied around the Lord of the Mountains, Askey Muhammad. 
The sheer speed of this rebellion suggests a well-orchestrated coup, one that may well have been plotted for some time, just waiting for the right opportunity to assassinate Sunni Ali and replace him with Asghar Mohammed. Sunni Baru, however, would not give up his throne easily. According to the Tariq al-Fatash, Sunni Baru massed his army. Like a mountain range, they raised storms of dust that turned day into night. After an initial skirmish in February 1493, Sunni Baru consolidated his army around the capital city of Gao. He was followed there by the forces loyal to Asghar Mohammed, and it soon became apparent that a climactic battle would happen sooner rather than later. On April the 12th, 1493, Sunni Baru led his troops out of Gao and marched to meet Asghar Mohammed at a place called Anfao on the upper Niger. Its exact location is now lost to us. While the sources make it clear that Asghar Mohammed was heavily outnumbered, they are also quick to point out that Sunni Baru was inexperienced in warfare, whereas Asghar was a battle-hardened general with years of campaigning behind him. While we have no description of the battle, it is possible to visualise what may have occurred by looking at African warfare in this period. Firstly, both sides would have unleashed volleys of arrows, followed by cavalry harassing each other on the flank. Infantry would have then come to close quarter battle, mainly armed with spears, until one side would have given way. Finally, the cavalry would have poured into the gaps, turning a hesitant retreat into a bloody rout. Experience this time triumphed over youthful exuberance and Sunni Baru fled into exile. From this moment, in April 1493, Asghar Mohammed would rule the 24 tribes of the Songhai for the next 35 years, and his dynasty would reign in the region for 407 years, but on an ever-decreasing territorial basis. The Songhai Empire that Asghar Mohammed eventually ruled over covered a massive territory, bigger than that of the Empire of Ghana and even that of Mali. Eventually, the Songhai Empire would extend to cover 540,000 square miles, the equivalent of six times that of the United Kingdom. Imperial Songhai was a multi-ethnic entity with a broad diversity of tribes, including the Fulbe, Seninki, Tuareg, Dogon, Bambara and Bozo people. But for all its great extent and ethnic diversity, the Songhai Empire had suffered greatly under the authoritarian rule of Sunni Ali as well as the upheaval of the recent civil war. Asghar Mohammed set out to fix all these problems. As seems to be the case with most new rulers, his first reforms were to the army, probably to ensure its loyalty. He increased his cavalry numbers and moved away from slave and conscripted soldiers, instead establishing a truly professional standing army. Having created a more flexible, skillful army, he now chose to use it to bring peace to the borderlands. As a devout Muslim, rather than just attacking his enemies, he first declared jihad. Then he attacked the Mossi people in the south, where he conquered and took their territory. Having seen off the southern threat, he now turned north and seized the great salt mines of Tokhaza from the Tuaregs. These salt mines were amongst the greatest in North Africa, and salt was so abundant that it was said that the inhabitants there built their houses from slabs of the stuff. In other campaigns, Asghar Mohammed conquered the Diara, Futatoro in Senegal, 
and in the east the house estates of Gabia, Katsina and Zaria. In order to win control of the main caravan routes to the north, he founded a colony near Agadez in Niger to pacify the Berbers. Eventually the empire stretched from the Senegal River in the west to what is today central Mali in the east. So Askia Muhammad expanded the borders of the Songhai Empire until it became the greatest empire Africa had ever seen. But if Askia Muhammad was just a conqueror like Sunni Ali, how did he bring peace and prosperity back to the people of the Songhai? By using his diplomatic skills and being an able administrator. He saw the need to reconcile all of his people, especially the scholars of Timbuktu. He also saw the need to get on better terms with his Muslim neighbours and to find a way to improve the economic prosperity of the empire. In his 35 years as emperor, he strove to introduce reforms in the diplomatic, economic and governmental spheres. As part of this new age in diplomacy, Askin Muhammad forged connections across the Muslim world. Like the great Mansa Musa, who was emperor of Mali in the 14th century, Askin Muhammad went on the Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. In 1496, he set up on a journey of some 5,000 miles and 15 months in duration. He took with him the leaders of all the Songhai ethnic groups so they could see the wider world and also the prestige with which Askia Muhammad was held in and the benefits of working together. By creating this feeling of inclusivity, he forged a state that crossed ethnic boundaries and so created a different type of West African empire. In the empire of Ghana, the Saninki people had conquered their neighbours and ruled over them. In the Empire of Mali, it had been the Mande people who had conquered their neighbours and ruled over them. But Askia Muhammad wanted something different. He was a pluralist, and this inclusivity was a true source of his power. In the end, the Songhai Empire he ruled over was so large that the Songhai people themselves formed only a small minority group in a state that encompassed such diverse tribes as the Mande, the Fulbe, Mossi and Tuareg. Askin Muhammad had created a new type of West African empire, one that was formed from all the different tribes that lived within its borders, and in its turn inspired loyalty in its people that rose above their tribal or ethnic loyalties. In short, Askin Muhammad created a modern kind of state. While he was clearly an adherent to Islam, he held the title of Khalifa Sudan. Askin Muhammad does seem to have succeeded in uniting the two sides of the empire of the Songhai, its heart in Gao and its brain in Timbuktu. Somehow he had found a way to combine the Muslim in the cities with the animists worshipping their ancestors in the countryside. But a great emperor also needs to be an able administrator. Askin Muhammad introduced standardised trade measurements and regulations. He ensured the trade routes were regularly patrolled and were safe for the merchant caravans. He also divided the empire into states and appointed trusted men as governors in each one. Muhammad also reformed the practice of government. He created an imperial council of the most senior officials to give him advice. He didn't always take it, but they always gave him the advice. These included ministers in charge of finance, the army, the navy and agriculture. In addition, he created posts that you probably wouldn't expect in a 15th century African empire. He created departments looking after forests and wages. He also created a role of Chancellor Secretary, 
whose job it was to deal with all the official paperwork. He may well have been the first African Sir Humphrey. And of course, like all good administrators, he also ensured the treasury was being filled by a network of local tax inspectors who collected taxes from all the inhabitants. But even here there seems to have been some attempt to collect the tax progressively. The money raised, of course, went towards paying for the court and the army, but some money was also set aside for the provision for the relief of the poor. All of these reforms, diplomatic, economic and governmental, ushered in an age of unprecedented peace and prosperity and forged an empire that looked like it might truly stand the test of time. A golden age for West Africa beckoned, but this golden age, like all golden ages, was destined to come to an end. And like most previous Songhai crises, it was a succession crisis that tipped the Songhai from peace and prosperity to civil war and destitution. Asking Mohammed reigned for 35 years, but in his later years he became blind, and by Songhai Lord should have relinquished the throne, as he was incapable of leading his army into battle. But Mohammed tried to cling on to power, and began to rely on his royal vizier, a man called Ali Fulan. So powerful did this royal vizier become, that the many sons of Asghar Mohammed grew worried that he would take the crown for himself. Eventually, one of Asghar's 37 sons grew so impatient that he made the first move to seize the crown. In a bloodless coup, his son Asghar Musa seized the throne. Not too surprisingly, Musa's coup was not universally welcomed by the other sons, and the Songhai Empire erupted into bloody civil war. Musa ruled for just two years, between 1529 and 1531, but his reign was murderous, with unknown numbers of brothers and about 30 other male relatives killed through either assassination, execution or battle. But although Musa himself was killed in 1531, after his remaining brothers conspired against him, peace did not break out. In fact, it wasn't one of his brothers, but his cousin Askir Benkin who seized the throne. And it was Askir Benkin who banished Askir Mohammed to an island in the middle of the Niger that, according to the chronicles, was infested with mosquitoes and toads. Again, not too surprisingly, the remaining sons of Mohammed did not take this usurpation by their cousin very well and a further six years of chaotic unrest and violence would pass before another of Asghar Mohammed's sons, Asghar Ishmael, would have sufficient grip on power that he was able to release his father from his prison and the old king was able to return home to die one year later at the ripe old age of 97. But as was the way in West Africa, uneasy is the head that wears the crown and Ishmael himself died in mysterious circumstances and the chaos of succession rolled ever on. Asghar Ishak I reigned for ten bloody years, executing hundreds of officials who dared to disagree with him. According to the Tariq al-Sudan, if he imagined anyone was making the least move against the throne, he would, without exception, have him killed or banished. This was his constant practice. For twenty years, between 1529 and 1549, the Songhai Empire was a scene of constant bloody civil war, as an entire generation was sacrificed by the warring claimants to the throne. Asghar Muhammad may have turned the Songhai Empire 
into what is now justifiably seen as one of Africa's greatest ever powers, but his descendants turned this legacy to dust. The economy crumbled in the face of internecine strife, as the treasury was spent to satisfy the vanity of princes, and no monies flowed into the coffers as trade was disrupted throughout the region. The main cities of Genet, Timbuktu and Gao turned from lucrative trade hubs to ruins. The income of the empire was damaged beyond repair, but one resource remained and grew in importance, and that was slaves. As everything else dwindled, the slave trade increased massively in volume. It was simply a case of supply and demand. There had always been a large supply, as black Africans willingly sold their brethren across Africa to the greatest slave traders the world has ever seen, the Muslims of North Africa and the Middle East. But the supply now increased massively, as entire armies of defeated Songhai princes were sold into captivity into North Africa, Arabia, and the burgeoning new market of the Americas. Because the increase in supply now met the increase in demand, as the chaos of the Songhai Empire coincided with the establishment of the first European trading posts on the African Atlantic coast. And we now see the beginning of the transatlantic slave route, as the colonies of Portugal and Spain developed an insatiable appetite for African manpower. An appetite that was well established long before England got involved over a hundred years later. By the time Britain became the first country to abolish slavery in 1807, 12 million black Africans had been transported to the New World, with Britain being responsible for about 3 million. A disaster of epic proportions that Africa has never recovered from. The succession battles of the Songhai finally petered out in 1549, with a 34-year reign of Askia Daoud, who is sometimes considered to be the second greatest king in Songhai history, after Askia Muhammad. He came to power unopposed, and his reign was largely peaceful. Daoud was a shrewd political operator who ushered in a period of stability by ensuring that his sons were placed in important positions within the government and were invested in the success of the empire rather than empire building for themselves. But the empire Daoud inherited was not the empire of Askia Muhammad. The 20 years of conflict had resulted in a much weakened, damaged and divided country. The days of growing Songhai were long gone, but Daoud began by trying to regain control of the existing states of the empire. And to this end, he had some success in putting down the various rebel factions and bandits that had taken over parts of the empire. But the rule of Daoud is also linked to an ever more reliance on slavery as the Songhai turned from a liberal empire into a true slave state. Feeding the people of the Songhai was a cause of concern for the government as agriculture had been hit hard by the years of war famine and drought. The citizen farmers who had worked the farms were replaced with slave plantations. The reign of Daud is therefore tarnished by an ever-growing internal slave trade, but things turned even worse towards the end of his long reign. Firstly, in 1582, a great plague killed thousands in Timbuktu, followed by a fast-spreading infection of syphilis across the rest of the Songhai that ravaged the population. The source of this dreadful disease was a byproduct of the transatlantic slave trade, as it was imported into Africa by the Portuguese who had contracted it in the Americas. 
Things really could not get much worse for the Empire of the Songhai, but they were about to do so. Askidau died in 1583, and the endless civil war started again. Six years of civil war, emperor swiftly followed by emperor, were worsened by a return of the twin natural horrors of drought and famine. A strong Songhai state, ruled by Asking Muhammad, might have survived, but those days were long gone, and the Songhai Empire entered the end state of the empire life cycle model, and this time there was no turning back. The final king of an entity that can be called the Empire of the Songhai was a man called Askia Ishak II, who became emperor in 1588. He was the ninth king of the Askia dynasty, and while he appears to have been relatively competent, in his ruthlessness he took after Sunni Ali rather than Askia Muhammad. The chronicles record that his favourite method of execution was to bury his victims alive, and there were apparently many, many thousands of victims. The empire life cycle model needs two things for it to swing irreversibly in the direction of permanent imperial change. It needs one state to be in decline, while another state rises to take its place. If Songhai was in permanent decline, which neighbour was on the rise? The answer was Morocco. Morocco had been growing in strength for several decades, driven in part by strategic location in North Africa, just across from Spain and Portugal. It grew in mercantile importance, but had been in some danger of being subsumed into the Portuguese Empire until a new dynasty took control of Morocco in 1549. The Saudi dynasty gained massive popular support by expelling the Portuguese from their forts and trading posts that they had opened all along the Moroccan coastline. Across the 1550s and 1560s, Portugal had grown concerned with the growing influence of the Ottoman Empire within Morocco and was looking for any excuse to intervene. They finally had their excuse and invaded Morocco after an appeal from the former Sultan of Morocco who had been replaced by his pro-Ottoman uncle. The Portuguese army that, that invaded Morocco was led by their king, King Sebastian, and he was so confident of victory that he was accompanied by virtually the entire Portuguese court on the campaign trail. The climactic battle of El Casir Kabir took place in 1578, where the Portuguese army was surrounded, enveloped and totally defeated. At a conservative estimate, 8,000 Portuguese soldiers were killed and 15,000 taken prisoner, and the Portuguese court was annihilated. While the war with Portugal may have strengthened the Saudi dynasty, Morocco was economically weak, and new ways would need to be found to fill its coffers. The Sultan's gaze drifted to the rich but troubled lands to the south of the Great Sand Sea, to the Songhai, the land of salt and gold. The salt mines of Tokhaza were particularly coveted, and Morocco had tried on previous occasion to wrest control from Songhai hands. But as salt was a precious commodity, so too was gold, and the Songhai had plenty of that as well. So, as Morocco eyed the Songhai's natural resources, stories reached it to the dire state of its government. According to the chronicles, a Songhai royal slave escaped from Gao, and after crossing the Sahara, arrived in Marrakesh, where the slave told the king how weak the empire really was. He told the sultan of its lack of leadership, its enfeebled powers, and he urged the king to take the land. And so, an invasion force was readied, 
It was led by a man called Judah Pasha. Born Diego de Guevara in Spain, he was captured by Moroccan slave raiders as a young boy and by luck was brought up in the service of the Moroccan Sultan. With his royal patronage, he rose to the ranks of Moroccan society and soon proved himself a shrewd and capable military commander. Given the parlour state and Moroccan treasury, Judah Pasha had only a force of some 4,000 men to take on Africa's greatest empire. But Judah's force had something the Songhai army did not, modern weaponry. Most of Judah's men were musketeers, some mercenaries of Spain, others Portuguese prisoners from the Battle of El Kassir Kabir. And in addition, he also had eight cannon, possibly provided by England as part of a treaty obligation signed with Elizabeth I, while the Songhai could only boast archers, spearmen and cavalry. In November 1590, Judah's expedition left Marrakesh, hoping to cross the Sahara when the weather was slightly cooler. Even so, the crossing was slow and arduous, as they had to carry all of their supplies, cannon and ammunition. It took them four months, twice as long as normal. A journey of yet another month now faced them after that, as they marched to the great capital city of the Songhai. They trudged through the silty floodplain, crossed mosquito-infested swamps, but finally, five months after leaving Marrakesh, they arrived in sight of the city walls of Gao. A raid just outside the city walls, on the cattle pastures of Tondibi, they saw a vast army. It was the army of the Songhai in all its glory. It's estimated that the force Aski Ishak II had gathered was well in excess of 40,000 men, and some of the sources claim it may have been as many as 80,000. We can only imagine a spectacle such a sight would have made to both eyes and ears. The noise would have been deafening, orders being shouted, drums beating instructions, trumpets blaring, war cries chanted, the hoofbeat of cavalry, and everywhere the metallic clank of arms and armour. The Songhai army would have consisted of archers, light and heavy cavalry, and massed rank after rank of infantry armed with spears, but no muskets and no cannon. But the Songhai generals had a secret weapon of their own with which they hoped to neutralise these new wonder weapons. Cows. The plan was simple. They would stampede thousands of cattle towards the Moroccan lines to draw their fire and hopefully smash through their ranks. The Songhai generals would then send in the heavy cavalry to turn flight into rout. The Songhai troops successfully stampeded the cattle and they began to hurtle towards the Moroccan lines with a thunderous noise as thousands of hooves churned the ground into a dust cloud. It looked like the plan would succeed. That is, until the Moroccans fired a volley from their cannon. The cattle stopped, and terrified by the loudest noise they had ever heard, turned and headed straight back at the Songhai army. Thousands of Songhai troops were crushed underfoot by the headlong flight of the cattle. Unperturbed, Ashki Ishak II ordered his infantry to advance against a thin line of Moroccan musketeers. We can only imagine the sight as the Songhai infantry advanced on their foes. The Moroccan artillery, at a range of about 300 metres, would have started to fire solid round shot, cutting swathes through the approaching infantry. Judah Pasha would have then waited and the Songhai were about 100 metres away before ordering their first rank to unleash a volley from their matchlock muskets. The Songhai armour, 
designed to withstand arrows and spears, would have done nothing to stop the balls of lead. Hundreds would have died with the first volley. All the time the infantry kept coming. The Moroccan cannon would have fired continually. The second rank of Moroccan musketeers would have fired and more Songhai soldiers fled. The third rank would have then stepped forward. The chronicles recall. The dust and smoke engulfed the throngs of combatants and God sowed fear and dread into the ranks of the Songhai army. The infantry fled the battlefield. With a last roll of the dice, Aska Ishak II now launched his cavalry. They shared the fate of their foot soldier brethren. Hundreds of men and horses were felled by the disciplined firing of the Moroccan musketeers. All that remained of the once magnificent Songhai army was now the elite royal bodyguard arrayed around their ruler. Sensing the time was right, Judah Pasha now ordered his small band of troops to advance. Drawing their swords and marching towards the royal bodyguard, on they came. Like the house calls of Harold at Hastings, the royal bodyguard fought to the last man. But this time, Aski Ishak II did not share the fate of his men like Harold had, but swiftly fed the battlefield. And with him went the once mighty empire of the Songhai. Aska Ishak II was soon deposed, and Morocco established their own short-lived empire in West Africa. It is fair to say that Judah Pasha was underwhelmed when he first entered Gao. Stories of the splendour of Gao dated back to Aski Mohammed's time, but the incessant civil wars, economic depression and misrule had had a devastating effect. Judah Pasha said that the finest house in Gao was less than the cowsheds in Marrakesh. For a while, the Askia dynasty tried to push back on the Morocco invasion, but all attempts failed. However, Morocco was never fully in control as they found the challenges of maintaining an empire across the vast sandy wastes of the Sahara impossible to manage. The Sultan in far off Marrakesh tried to keep control of the region by sending in viziers in part to keep Judah Pasha in check. These viziers kept dying mysteriously, and Judah Pasha remained the one constant in the government of the Songhai under Morocco. In 1601, nine years after the Battle of Tondibi, the Moroccans finally pulled back, taking with them as much wealth as they could carry on thousands of camels. Gao, Timbuktu and Jene were systematically looted, and many of the scholars were led back in chains. Judah Pasha headed back to Marrakesh with his own personal train of 30 camels, carrying as much gold as they could carry as payment for his years of service. Unfortunately, Judah Pasha had only five years to enjoy his loot, as he was executed for treason in 1606. I think the Sultan of Vainly got his man. Morocco retained control of Timbuktu for a while, but the once eternal library city slowly regained its independence over the next century or so and then slowly declined in importance across the next couple of hundred years, until finally, in 1893, the French added it to their own West African empire. And in a final nod to John Bagot Glub, the Songhai existed as an independent entity since the end of rule by the Empire of Mali for 216 years, not too far off his estimate of 250 years for the average lifespan of an empire. The Empire of the Songhai had had a charmed existence, with long years of stability, 
chiefly under Askia Muhammad and Askia Dawood, interspersed with bloody periods of civil war. But this time it was the end, and it had happened swiftly. There are just eight short years between the reign of its second greatest king, Askia Dawood, and the downfall of Askia Ishak II. The defeat at Tondibi splintered the empire, and after Morocco pulled out in 1601, soon, where a mighty empire had once stood, now stood countless small kingdoms. These then swiftly failed and broke into even smaller kingdoms, until even the once mighty Askia dynasty controlled just a few hundred square miles of territory. The final Askia ruler ruled until the early 20th century. In 1901, he was eventually annexed by the French in the Dende region of Niger. As the ever-splintering states warred amongst each other, they sold their captured enemies into slavery. Europeans from many countries, including Britain, soon set up trading posts to reap the benefits from this ever-expanding slave economy. These trading posts sprung up all along the Atlantic coast of West Africa, and the infamous transatlantic slave trade really began in earnest. And with this loss in manpower, the hopes of West Africa to rebuild the glories of the Empire of Ghana, Mali and the Songhai disappeared into the ashes of history. The economy of Timbuktu, Jene and Gao now declined. Timbuktu, once the brain of the Songhai, lost its reputation as a centre of learning. The author of the Tariq al-Sudan, al-Saadi, wrote, I have witnessed the ruin of learning and its utter collapse. Timbuktu was repeatedly besieged and ransacked, its scholars sold as slaves. Its once famous libraries became dust-choked halls of empty shelves. But some of the noble families saved a few books here and there from the bandits and the invading armies, and it is only thanks to them that the story of the Songhai Empire can actually be told. Gao, that great capital of the empire, slowly faded and shrank into obscurity. Its once great architecture collapsed and nature reclaimed its once bustling streets. Eventually, about 300 families remained in the rubble and so it would remain until the German explorer Heinrich Barth in 1854 stumbled upon its ruins and wondered at its majesty. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.